Father, uh, we thank you this morning uh, that uh, we have the opportunity to study and think about your word and to grow in our faith. Uh, and we pray that uh, it will be exhibited in our walk in a manner that glorifies you. Pray that the Holy Spirit will powerfully uh, uh, speak uh, through Ray this morning. I uh, pray that uh, we'll have receptive hearts to what you have for us this morning. Also, I give thanks that uh, Johnny Boyette has uh, indeed uh, recovered and is doing well. I pray for my grand, my uh, daughter-in-law's mother who's hospitalized with uh, uh, COVID right now and uh, looks uh, doesn't look promising for her survival. Mm. So I pray for comfort. Uh, for my son, my daughter-in-law, uh, for uh, my daughter-in-law's father. Um, so, and we give you thanks that, uh, uh, that you love us. And in the circumstances we live, uh, we can always live with hope. We can also enjoy the joy that the Spirit provides for, for us. And uh, so in all things, we give thanks. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Well, this morning I'd like to look at this exciting passage in the book of Romans. But before we look at Romans eleven twenty-five, why don't you turn to Jeremiah? And I'd like to kind of introduce it by reminding us of a passage we've looked at before. In fact, we expounded the passage when we were studying the book of Hebrews. Some of you may remember that. It wasn't quite last century, but it was a few years ago. But Jeremiah 31, I think, is at the heart of what we're looking at in uh, Romans 11, 25 through 27. So if you've turned there, let me just read a little bit of it. In fact, would somebody care to read First of all, let's read it and look at each of the verses there briefly, and then we'll skip back to the book of Romans and look at verse 25 and develop the passage there. Anyone care to read verse 31? 30, Jeremiah 31, 31, kind of as an introduction to our passage that we'll look at today. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Okay, first thing to notice there, days are coming, future from Jeremiah's time, and this has never been fulfilled in history, so it's future from our time as well. Second thing to note is this is a covenant a legal contract that God enters into with certain parties. The third thing to note here are the parties to the covenant. Obviously, God is the initiator, so God is a party, declares the Lord in the verse. And then thirdly, with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So this is a covenant between God and Israel. And the reason it's divided that way is because the nation was divided at the time that Jeremiah writes. In fact, the northern kingdom had already gone into captivity by the Assyrians or scattered by the Assyrians. And this is in the midst of the Babylonian captivity of, of Judah. So they are the parties. It's not the church. The church are not parties to the covenant. We discussed different ways to understand how the church fits in. I won't get into that, but this is with Israel. Somebody else cared to read verse 32. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Read 33 as well. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Okay, that's the heart of the covenant, verse 33. But he's contrasting it with what other covenant? This is not the covenant that he made before. Pretty clear in the passage. It's not the Mosaic covenant. In fact, this is in contrast 
And this one will essentially supersede or replace the Mosaic Covenant. And notice he also reiterates that it is a, a future covenant after those days in verse 33. Now, what is he talking about there? Probably referring to even a future time beyond Jeremiah and beyond the Babylonian captivity, and we would say even beyond our day. And notice the essence of it. He's going to put the law within their hearts. They're not going to have to, I don't think, even memorize. I think God's going to put it there. I think he will obviously be their God. In other words, there's going to be a relationship that God is going to enter into with the nation of Israel, and they will be his people. Now, somebody read verse 34, and then we'll get to the book of Romans. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Okay, notice what it also says there, that they're going to understand the word. They're going to know the word because it's written on their hearts. So there's not going to be a need for teachers amongst the nation of Israel. Now, other passages indicate that Israel will be the source of teaching for the nations. But Israel will all be converted. He's referring to a group of Israelites. I think this is what Paul is talking about when he says all Israel will be saved. And the reason I quote this is some scholars think the last part there, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, will I will remember no more. That is part of what Paul is also saying in uh, 1126. Now, he's probably quoting from a different passage, but you can see the allusion there. And some believe that the last part there is the, the last part of verse 27. So when we get there, we'll remind you of this new covenant that we have in Jeremiah 31. And remember, Jeremiah is written when the nation, I don't remember exactly, they, they may have already, the city may have already been destroyed, the temple destroyed, and the nation already destroyed. If not already, then on the birds. So he's promising a future for the nation of Israel in the midst of tragedy. So he's writing to Christians in Rome, and he's still, and we'll look at this, but he's still addressing the Gentile group primarily, knowing that uh, obviously there's a Jewish contingent, but he's describing for the Gentiles what this future is, and I think he's describing it to the Gentiles because many of the Jews should know, if they know the Old Testament, they know that God has promised a future for them, and particularly the Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 passage that uh, gives us the new covenant. So Paul is reminding them of the place of Israel and how God's righteousness is vindicated in his dealings with Israel, sovereignly choosing them, chapter 9 through verse 29, but because of their rejection of Messiah and unbelief in general, chapter 9, 30 through 10, 21, they are under discipline and in a real sense rejected, and the chapter that we're in is the glorious chapter that speaks of their restoration and the specific passage is the one that we'll look at today of that glorious statement that Paul makes. It almost seems like he's been anticipating that throughout chapters 9 through 11, the statement being, all Israel shall be saved. So there's a future for not only the nation of Israel, but uh, there are events that pertain to the church age as well in terms of its culmination, you might say, in that illustration of the olive tree. So we're looking at this joke. Go ahead. Uh, before you go on, going back to the reading of that passage. Jeremiah? Yeah. Um, when it says everyone, small and great, even the littlest ones or little ones, um, how do you interpret that if not individually? Well, it is individual. I think Jeremiah speaks individually of 
of a group of Israelites. He's speaking of the Israelites that, in fact, come into that relationship. We're going to talk about some that do not. Yeah, and I think that passage is a little bit different from the Romans passage in that Jeremiah is speaking specific in terms of individuals as well. I get it. Okay. All right. Thanks. No problem. Well, and it's helpful to remember, pardon, it's helpful to remember that the Jeremiah 31 passage uh, regarding the New Covenant uh, extends all the way to the end of that chapter. Yes. Uh, uh, because there's also promises regarding the extent of the most holy uh, in the last couple verses. Yep. And in fact, the covenant includes lots of aspects. It includes the land as well. And it, it, it includes relationships with non-Jewish people as well. So there's lots of stuff in there. This is just one of the passages in Jeremiah that speak of the uh, new covenant Paul seems to be quoting another passage in Isaiah that also refers to the, we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. So, yes, Jeff is right on on that. So, question, can I ask you a question? Sure. I just want to make sure I understood what you, you said about uh, the Jews in the context of Jeremiah here. Are you saying, did you say that uh, uh, that this is, what is being described in in Romans nine, where the some of them stumbled? Uh, no, if no, I understand, so I if I understand you right, no. Uh, I think what Jeremiah is looking at is what Paul makes more specific in terms of the the group of Israelites that respond at that certain time that he's describing. I don't know. Does that? I don't know if that clarifies at all. And the one, also the ones at that certain time that don't respond? No, I don't think the he's not discussing them. And I think he's discussing the house of Israel and the house of Judah together. In other words, there's going to be one nation at that time. And I think Paul is giving us some of the outworking of that nationally as well. But the Jeremiah, I think, pertains to individuals. And obviously, what Paul is talking about, you have to have a group of individuals that that respond, but he's treating them in Romans more uh, corporately, if you will. We'll we'll get into some of that. I don't know if that answers you. Does that answer, Jim? Well, my question was, uh, what uh, in what group were you talking about in terms of the of time? I, it's just a question. I I'm still not clear on whether you're the the group that's rejected, uh, the the Israel, the Jewish group that's rejected. Uh, are you talking about the? Are you talking about the the group contemporarily contemporaneous? Tempor- can't say the word. That were contemporary to the time of Paul. Jeremiah is addressing that future group. He's not talking about uh, the portion that is hardened until a certain time frame nor is he discussing those that uh, do not respond. And there's an Ezekiel passage that we'll look up that kind of makes that clear. So, so are these groups of people that are during the, the future tribulation then? Yes, the yes. Bottom line All is, right. yeah. Yeah, All after right. the believing portion of the church is removed. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Yep. Thank now, there's you. always been a remnant He's arguing in the early verses here that God has not totally rejected his people because there's always been a remnant, and he gives the examples of himself and some from the Old Testament, etc., and those believers in the first century that have believed. He also has the idea of a, a future restoration, and we're getting to that passage But even the rejection of Israel, of their Messiah, has purposes that God is using to allow the possibility of Gentiles coming in on an equal basis, which Paul in other places talks about as a mystery. 11 through 16, we completed looking at the parable of the olive tree, 17 through 24, where Paul gives an analogy or an illustration. I use the word parable. It's like a parable, you might say, mainly to alliterate the passage there. 
And now we have the promises of Israel's restoration, where it's overt, 25 through 32. We're looking at the deliverance of hardened Israel. This is the passage that Paul, I understand, to be anticipating as he moves, not just through chapter 11, but he lays the the foundation from chapters 9 and 10 as well. In fact, I'm going to give you a little slide here that kind of summarizes what God, what God is doing and what Paul is describing when he talks about Israel and the promise of deliverance. And the deliverance from hardness is in verse 25. But this restoration we saw already in chapter 11, first six verses, this is a, there's already a partial restoration, you might say, in the remnant. So you have the first fruits, you could say, of this restoration even began in the first century. And Paul's making the point that that's only a part. In fact, the majority of Jewish people are hardened. I don't have this on that, this slide, but you'll see as we move through. I think verse 16, when he talks about the, uh, the root and the branches, because the branches are connected to the root in the illustration, the root sets them apart. Paul uses the word when the root, because the root is holy, so also are the branches. That didn't mean experientially, but it, what it means is that God has them set apart positionally. They are hardened throughout the church age, but that does not change the covenant. That does not change the promises. That does not change what God has for the nation in the future. They are set apart. So there's, you could think of it in terms of a positional uh, truth that applies to the nation of Israel. So we saw that in verse 16. And we also saw in verse 23 that this restoration is possible See how Paul is building here? It's possible in that God is able, is what he says in, the, in verse 23, to graft them in. He's omnipotent, so he can do whatever he wants to. He's sovereign, so it's possible. And it's not only possible, but the next verse, verse 24, it's probable. It's probable. If God is able to graft in the Gentile, who is a wild branch, how much more is he capable to regraft that that originally was cut off? Certainly he is able. So the argument from the lesser to the greater, not only is God able, making it possible for a restoration, but it's even probable. And we're going to see he's going to take another step in uh, verse 25. So I'll come back to this slide. So this passage that we're going to look at, at least the first sentence, and then verse 27 is another sentence. Hopefully, we'll get all the way to close to verse 27 anyway. Notice, and let's break it down so that we see what is the focus of the sentence. Anyone want to venture as to what is the first independent clause of this passage? Hey, Ray. Yeah, Nate. Uh, real quick before... Uh, someone else answers your grammatical question. Uh, it, it seems to me that, that one good argument that supports what you're saying about the kind of the corporate nature of this and that the focus isn't so much on the individual is that, you know, so the branches were broken off and, and then God's going to put them back in. And so obviously he's not talking about um, the same people. They're the same individuals because we've had so much time that has passed. And so this future event of branches being regrafted, um, you know, that's not talking about the same people, but it's talking about the same group. Right. That there's those from Israel that at some point will um, be placed back in to that position of blessing. Yeah. And consistently throughout 9 through 11 in the Book of Romans, we've seen that he's using in general this corporate idea when he refers to Israel. Also, the Gentiles there. I don't want to use the word corporate because there's not, you know, there are different nations, different individuals, but he's looking at them in the most general way. 
and he's not including the unbeliever. Is the unbeliever is not grafted into the root? So he in the and again, it's an illustration. It's he he's looking at them in the broadest sense. Gentiles have this new opportunity to be grafted in. So you have to look at it very, very broadly as well. Yeah, that's... And along those lines of the broadness of it, the uh, it seems to me that you actually, as far as Israel is concerned, that you do have unbelievers grafted and then they're removed, or they're removed because of unbelief. And so there's reason to believe that those could be um, Jewish people that, that never believed and and they're removed from that point of, of blessing. But you do have, it, it almost does seem like, at least on the Jewish end, that there are unbelievers, and you can comment if you agree or disagree. No, I agree. And then those were removed. But the, the point being is that that gives you the broadness of it, that you can't be overly specific about some of these different relationships because Paul's just trying to give this big point of Jews, they didn't believe, you have the remnant that are there, the unbelieving are removed, and at some point, Jews will believe, yeah. and they'll be restored, and the, the Gentiles have believed, and they're apart, and to the extent that Gentiles continue believing, they'll continue having that the part of the blessing, and but that it's not a, an, a guarantee. Right. And if it, and as a group, if the Gentiles stop responding to the gospel then you know god's plan is is done and he moves on that seems to me kind of the broad again the broad picture really seems to fit and like you said it seems that there's a lot of problems if you try to get too specific yes about the individual component of it yep absolutely now when i refer to israel i can refer to them as corporately or nationally using kind of the words interchangeably yeah so he's, he's speaking broadly. And, and when we talk about that little phrase there, I'll, ex- I'll comment some more on that. Anyone come up with, uh, you've had plenty of time, and Nate gave you lots of time to figure out the first independent clause. And it looks like Jim's got his mic open. Uh, it was just a comment. It seemed on a corporate, in a corporate uh, idea, uh, it, it seems like this could be a, also uh, an experience of the church. I'm not saying that this, this scripture it applies to the church. I'm just saying that if you look at the church today, uh, it's uh, there's a lot of similarity to what it seems like Israel was at the, at the time that Paul was speaking here. And I'm not at all equating the two. Right. I don't get the wrong idea. Yeah, I'm no. just talking about experientially. Yeah, and what I would add to what you're saying is we can draw some applications from the passage and distinguish them from the uh, interpretation or understanding of the passage. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Thank you. Yep. Okay, so you've got more time. Who wants to make a stab at the... Uh, at least the first independent clause. Anyone got it? And so all Israel will be saved. Well, I think that's the focus of the passage, but in terms of the grammar. Okay, I think it's for I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. Very good. I think that's it. For I do, the for there just kind of ties it back. I don't think it's a subordinating conjunction. It ties it back to what he's been talking about, the illustration. And it begins, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. And then now we have a parenthetical statement that, and then we have a that to expand what he talks about concerning the mystery, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, semicolon. And do we have another independent clause? We have an and, which suggests that we might be. Now I think we have, and so all Israel will be saved. I think that's the second independent clause. So you, you got well, it. Ray, Go ahead. Ray, would that be, uh, an, if I don't want you to be uninformed of the mystery, a partial hardening has happened. All Israel would be saved could, could be um, two 
clauses, subordinate clauses that we are referring to the mystery of God that he is explaining to his hearers. Yeah, I think the mystery, though, is ending before we get to 26, because when I explain, I'm going to explain a mystery, and the idea of Israel and their future salvation is not a mystery. That is clear in the Old Testament from the Jeremiah passage that we looked at and many other passages as well. So that's not part of the mystery. But the mystery, we'll develop it, I think, is after that little parenthetical statement there. But, but it could be a mystery to the Gentiles to whom he is writing. Yes. Well, I think everything is a mystery to them. Yeah. But technically, when we, when we come to this concept of a mystery— I'm going to try and give you some verses that indicate what a mystery is in the in the usage of the New Testament in many cases. Not every usage of the word, but in many cases, the word is used in a particular way, and I think this is one of them. We'll talk some more about the mystery. So there's your independent clauses, and you identified them very well, so you're kind of getting good at this grammar thing. So the focus of 25 is explaining something relating. I want, he wants them to know or, or not be ignorant of, or uninformed of a mystery. And then there's a second thing that he wants to emphasize and for them to know, so all Israel will be saved. So let's look at that first independent clause, for I do not want you, and I, I'm going to call attention here because it it kind of shifts. I do not want you, plural, brethren, to be uninformed. Do you notice that? Of this mystery, and then in the parenthetical, so that you, plural, will not be wise in your plural own estimation. First of all, who is he? Well, I think Mary Lee already told us. He is still, in this passage, he is still primarily addressing or teaching the Gentiles. Now, some of this Jewish believers, if they knew their Old Testament, would know, uh, and it serves as a reminder to them, but directly he's talking about the you there, for I do not want you. I think it's the same you as he's, he's been talking about, what was it, starting in, I don't remember, verse 16 or somewhere in there. I do not want you, but interestingly, throughout that, he has used the singular in its broadest sense. That's why I kind of stress that idea in a very broad sense. But now, but I do not want you, and he adds the word brethren, so he's narrowing it now to believers, I believe. And the plural, he's looking at them in terms of all of you, brethren, but it's slightly different from the general Gentiles that we just discussed. In other words, generically, I think he's kind of narrowed it down to those that have trusted in Jesus Christ that are from the Gentile um, contingent, I guess you could say. I do not want you to be uninformed, and you could even add of this mystery. A couple of things to uh, notice here. I think the audience now has slightly changed from the generic Gentile to the more specific uh, believing Gentile within the church at Rome. So he's been speaking broadly, and now he's kind of narrowing it down a little bit closer to believing Gentiles. You see that? Now, it's not so evident in the English text, but what alerts you is he now uses that word, that more personal and that more specific word, believers, to address Gentile believers. Little tiny things in the text that are kind of encouraging us to understand kind of some of the more specific things. Now, this idea of uninformed or he does not want them to be uninformed. We won't look these up. There's some other passages I want you to, to notice that we'll look up later on. But I think what he's doing is he's calling attention to something of very, very special importance. 
And the reason for that is he's used this little phrase, I do not want you to be uninformed. He's already used it at the very beginning of the book in verse 13, chapter 1. You see it often in 1 Corinthians in 12.1, where he's talking about spiritual gifts. He doesn't want the Corinthians to be uninformed about spiritual gifts. He uses it in 2 Corinthians uh, 1.8, 1 Thessalonians 4.13. And in the 1 Thessalonians passage, anyone remember what he's talking about there? He doesn't want them to be uninformed about what? The rapture. The, the rapture. Very good. So he's used this phrase often, and there's others, by the way. I've just given you some that are easily identified, or probably you can identify just by looking at the verses. So this is something of very special importance that he's trying to bring before at least, not that he's ignoring the Jews, but he's addressing it more directly to the Gentiles, of this mystery. So let's talk about what a mystery is in the New Testament. It's not something, like when we speak of a mystery, we think of a novel and how it's going to work out and who done it and uh, all of the details are mysterious and the author weaves all of the, the characters and the events such that this kind of mysterious thing works itself out by the time you get to the last chapter. That's not the way that the word is used in the New Testament. It's used more specifically, and you might even say somewhat technically, and I think we have kind of an illustration of it even in uh, Romans. Would somebody care to look up uh, 16, 25, and 26? You might even consider that a definition of how the word is used in many contexts in the New Testament. And would somebody else care to look up Colossians 1.26? Who's got that one? Who's got uh, the Romans passage? I've got it. Good. Go ahead, Katie. All right. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, do you notice in verse 25, he uses the word, it's the same word, mysterion. I didn't write it up on the screen there, but uh, same term, same idea, the revelation of the mystery. Do you notice the two parts there, which has been kept secret for long ages? That's the idea. In other words, this is something that God has kept secret, has not revealed it. And I think the primary reference is before this time, before the church age, before, for example, the things that Paul received, before Paul received the revelation. And the next part, verse 26, and now made known. In other words, now revealed. Somebody have Colossians 1.26. Is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints. Okay, stop there. Stop there, and we'll come back to that. Save that, because I'm going to have you read it later on, the rest of it. Do you see those two aspects again? Colossians 1.26, which has been hidden from past ages. Same phrase that Paul uses in Romans but has now been manifested to the saints. Past ages, that would include uh, the, uh, the age of uh, Israel. It would include the pre-Israel ages, pre-flood ages, pre-fall age, you might say. So in prior ages, but now in the church age, at this time, God is unfolding the mystery. In other words, he's revealing it. It's a mystery because God has not revealed it. Do you see how uh, the word might be used here? And we have several examples. We won't take the time to look all of these up, but I'll have uh, Denise read verse, the rest of verse, well, 
read 26 and 27 again in a moment here. few examples. You might just jot these down. Colossians 2.2. 2. Part of the mystery are some aspects of Jesus Christ himself, some aspects of his incarnation, some aspects that are not revealed clearly. Now, the incarnation is revealed, but there's some things about it that uh, are brand new in terms of revelation in the New Testament. Paul uses that word when he talks about a new form of the kingdom after Israel has made it clear in Matthew's gospel that Israel has rejected their Messiah. Now, in Matthew 13, he's going to speak in terms of parables, and he uses the word, the mystery of the kingdom. So there's a new form of the kingdom that's going to work itself out. And if you understand the context and put it within the context of how God works through time, you can see that he's describing an inter-advent period of time, of which a subset of that would be the church age. But this inter-advent period of time between the first and the second comings of Messiah, there's going to be an outworking of certain things. And Jesus uses the word mystery there. Paul has received the revelation concerning the church in Ephesians 3, 3 through 9. Uh, We don't need to read those verses. Let me just look at the first part. That by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief, and then he expands and tells us what that mystery is, the mystery of God bringing together Jew and Gentile into one new entity on an equal basis, essentially describing the church. In Colossians 1.27, we already looked at verse 26. Read 26 again, Denise, and then finish verse 27. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So he tells us what the mystery, at least in Colossians, refers to, this indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, there was a limited, very limited experience of an indwelling presence or a presence of the Holy Spirit upon prophets, kings, special individuals in the Old Testament. But this indwelling presence of every believer, that has not been revealed until we come to the New Testament. Some escape death. He's referring to the rapture there. That's a mystery, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. So that's kind of the essence of a mystery, something that is not known or revealed in the Old Testament, past ages, but now made known in uh, the first century by the writers of the New Testament and obviously in the church age. And then he gives us a Go ahead, Steve. Uh, Steve, question. So... The New Testament temper or the Old Testament that was a, uh, a temporary, whereas the New Testament is it's a permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which is the mystery he's talking about, right? Yes, not only permanent Got but it. universal amongst uh, true believers. In other words, every single believer, not just prophets, kings, or some of the others as we saw in the Old Testament, special instruments of God. And now he introduces, yeah, thanks. A little parenthetical statement, New American Standard sets it apart with the dashes there. And again, he's kind of emphasizing to the Jews, I won't spend a lot of time on it, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. Remember, he already kind of has been exhorting and warning. Remember, we saw the parable of the olive tree as a warning primarily to the Gentile contingent. And the you here, I don't, didn't uh, call attention to it, but it's also plural, reminding at least the believing portion that uh, you are not to be wise in your own estimation. 
uh, remember he's already reminded, it's a reminder of what he talked about in the parable concerning arrogance and conceit. Don't think too highly of yourself. God has a plan. And I think in relationship to Israel, there's no replacement theology. There's no total and permanent rejection of the nation of Israel. Instead, and I think if you just skip the uh, parenthetical statement, I think what he's doing is defining very clearly what the mystery is. And this is something that is not in the Old Testament, that there's going to be a partial hardening has happened to Israel. Now, there's lots of passages that refer to uh, the the disobedience. In fact, Paul quotes a lot of them, and uh, uh, but he he but none of them seem to be specific in that there's going to be a period of time, an age where Israel is is hardened and set aside. In fact, the whole church age is a mystery, and I think that's the emphasis of it. This partial hardening, because he gives us a time frame here. Well, first of all, it's partial in extent. And then the next phrase is going to tell us that it's partial in terms of time. And we've been talking about this using this timeline where Israel is hardened during a period of time. And that's what he's talking about here. There's always a remnant. And during the church age, that remnant is incorporated into the body of Christ but the majority of Jewish people are hardened, which is an interesting concept that we discussed in some detail. And between Pentecost, we have a church age that'll continue until God has uh, completed his plan, which overlaps the inter-advent age, which is different, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So that specifies the end point of this period of hardening. And that is what the mystery is. It has these two components, the, the hardening of Israel in a time frame that uh, has, a, has an end date, you might say, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So what is this fullness of the Gentiles? There's some debate over it. The rapture. Well, I think that's the end point, yes. But the fullness itself is, I think, the complete number. I think it's, in some sense, numerical in that there's a complete number. The concept of God, obviously, knowing in his omniscience, and not only that, but God sovereignly has a certain number of Gentiles that will be included. Now, I tie that in with that doctrine of election. I was going to just interrupt and say, <laughs> gee, are you tap dancing around election? <laughs> I'm tap dancing around it, yeah, because not everybody agrees on it. But I think there is a precise number that obviously only God knows. He has not revealed it. And until that last Gentile that makes up the true church, there will be this hardening but there's this end date, and who was that, Denise, that uh, gave us the specific time frame? It'd be the rapture when the church is taken out. When that time has come, then that hardening, the implication is that the hardening will end, and now God will begin to deal with the, the nation of Israel. So the uh, fullness of the Gentiles is... I take it as the full number of Gentiles that began in the first century. You could say it began before Pentecost. There were believers, and there was probably regeneration. But in terms of the church specifically, beginning in Pentecost until the rapture, so there's a finite period of time that in large measure is a mystery in terms of the Old Testament. So I think verse 25 the mystery here is this partial hardening and the fullness of the Gentiles. You might summarize that as this period of time uh, between the first and second comings. Who is that? Uh, I think Jim had first and then Geneva. Well, okay, just quickly, it would also have to include the 
uh, Gentiles or believers before Israel existed. Uh, how do you, in what way? What would expand what you're saying? Well, if you're going to talk about Israel corporately, mm-hmm. uh, it would have to include believers before Israel existed scripturally. What would include? Uh, what are you including? Uh, the the, the uh, full number of Gentiles. Um, I don't know if they're in view in this passage because the Gentiles in Old Testament time had to, uh, they were proselytes. They had to, in essence, become Jewish. No, I'm uh, talking about before Israel existed. Oh, well, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't think he's dealing, I think he's dealing first century here. That's the mystery. I think he's dealing with those that are hardened that partial hardening during this inter-advent, at least, and maybe more specifically the church age. Okay. Okay. So that's the mystery in this context. So we've seen that the restoration is partial in the remnant. It's positional. They're set apart. It's possible, verse 23, God is able to regraft them. And not only is it possible, but it's even probable how much more can God do it if he did it with the Gentiles. And now I add another P, it's providential in that God is working to accomplish it. God is working to lift that hardness. So we can add another P to our list there. We could also add to our list of the perfections that we've already looked at as well that are underlying all that God is doing here. You could go all the way back to verse 12 that speaks of God faithful to the promises. 11, 12, remember that verse there? Now, if their transgression be riches for the world and their failure be riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? The fulfillment of all of the promises that God has made. He's talking about God being faithful and will in fact bring about a fulfillment to the promises. We saw the graciousness of God, verse 20, to believing Gentiles in the context here. We also saw that uh, the kindness of God in verse 22, remember the kindness and the severity of God, also verse 22, to believing Gentiles, kindness, severity, in other words, discipline to the hardened Jews, We saw the omnipotence of God. He's able to graft them in. He has all power, all ability to do that. And now we see his sovereignty in verse 25 over history to bring about this plan that he has in some aspects hidden and now is being made known through writers like Paul, God sovereignly working out a plan such that he will accomplish not only the, the faithfulness to the promises, but everything else that is contained in the plan. Uh, until, and then we have a little phrase here, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. If you study the little phrase there, has come in, the English phrase, some scholars actually see this as something like a technical phrase that occurs from Jesus himself, and in the Gospel of Matthew, for example, primarily in the Gospel of Matthew and the parallel passages, it has this connotation of the coming in into the millennial kingdom or into that future kingdom. Now, we don't have time to look up Matthew 5.20 or 7.13, or 2313, you might jot them down. And even in the Gospel of John, John 3, 5, unless a man is born again, he shall not come in or he shall not enter. New American Standard translates that little phrase, enter, in these passages. But it has the idea of entering into the kingdom. So he's talking about a time when Gentiles has come in or probably hinting maybe not overtly, but hinting at Gentiles entering into the kingdom, and that does not happen till the rapture has taken place. So the fullness of time may be an allusion to uh, the church being taken out 
And I think when we are taken out, we're taken out of a time frame. And I think we're uh, placed, if you will, in resurrection bodies into the millennial kingdom. And again, I think it reinforces the concept of the the rapture there. So we can... Okay. Uh, so, Ray, Ray yep. uh, based on this uh, number that you're talking about that you... Uh, would th- would that not would does it uh, imply then that God has created Gentiles to go to hell? That's going beyond any of the biblical passages that we have concerning it in terms of God's design. I, how can you get around that though? If the number of Gentiles that are created are more than the number He has in mind. Hey Jim, the point yeah. is that. Both people have the freedom to choose and God selects. Both are true. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. Nobody go, is sent to hell. Everybody chooses. At least that's the record of the revelation. Yeah, I don't believe in double predestination. You can come to that conclusion, but uh, there's no verse and I think you do balance it, as, as Bill is talking about. You balance the sovereignty, the election of God with the human responsibility. Both are true. And we may not be able to put it together. The Isaiah 55 passage is what uh, Bill is bringing out. Well, Can I say one thing? Sure, Janie. Well, in John 3, it talks about how we're already condemned. And so now we have the opportunity to, get- um, to be delivered. To be mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we got through verse 25, and this is probably a good place to, to stop. The deliverance from hardness. And now we'll talk about the deliverance of all Israel in verse 26 and 27. We see the deliverance is promised. And so all Israel will be saved. And we need to talk a little bit about what is meant by all Israel. We didn't quite get to it today, but let me just mention in summary here again, all Israel, all corporately, all Israel in terms of the nation will respond just like we know that all Israel rejected the Messiah, but not Every single individual rejected the Messiah. The so early- what you're saying is all Israel is actually all the Israelites who are elect. Well, you could say that. Again, yeah, that would be a conclusion that we can draw. But I would, what I'm getting at is when it says all will be saved The all is not absolute in the sense that every single Jew, even in that time, will believe. And obviously there's some debate amongst theologians. We'll we'll look at the ins and outs of so all Israel will be saved. I'm kind of summarizing it, giving you the conclusion, and then we'll develop that when we come back next time. So all, Ray, I have a question. Okay. Isn't this uh, 26, isn't this referring to the millennium? Because in the continued uh, process of reading, uh, the deliverer will come from Zion, etc. It even talks about the redemption of the land. Is that not in the, the millennium that he's making reference to? Well, I think it begins in the the tribulation period where there's a great response and such a response that the nation calls upon the name of the Lord and the Lord comes in deliverance. And we'll look at that word, the deliverer, and even the word salvation in this broad sense that uh, you're bringing out, The, the sense of a national deliverance. We'll take a look at some of the details there. Well, let's uh, gone a little longer than I expected. Let's have the uh, Pertzers introduce themselves, and then we can uh, uh, have a closing prayer and go on from here. Okay, thanks, Ray. Hi, everybody. It's great to see your black squares. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're going to start. 
about telling them about ourselves. Um, and so you might, I, I think we know a little bit about your seminary stuff that you might begin, you know, where you guys met and that sort of thing. I don't think okay. everybody knows. Sorry about that, uh, Ruthann. Go ahead, okay. Ruthann. Okay, so I was born in Wyoming, so I'm a Wyoming knight, and um, I believed in Jesus when I was young, around the age of three or four. Um, my dad led me to the Lord at the dinner table, and I grew up in a Christian home. Uh, my dad was a pastor of a church in the little town of Dayton, Wyoming, where I grew up, and um, then later he stopped being a pastor, and he... Um, is a chaplain at a veterans hospital in a nearby town, Sheridan, Wyoming. So I grew up um, reading the Bible and learning about the Bible and memorizing scripture, which I'm so thankful for. And I'm trying to carry that on and teach our kids and have our kids um, learn scripture because it's such an invaluable um, thing to just have God's word hidden in their hearts, in our hearts. Um, I went to a, a mountain camp when I was in junior high and there, a missionary would come and speak every week to the campers. And I remember thinking when I was hearing about the missionary's life and, um, this certain missionary that I would never be able to be a missionary. And here we are. Um, so it's, you know, sometimes God, um, has different plans for your life and, um, he sure had different plans for my life because I didn't think I was going to be a missionary. Um, although we are all are missionaries in our different um, walks of life. Um, and by the way, I knew Ruth Ann and even prayed for Ruth Ann before she was born. Yes, Ray and my dad knew each other. So um, yes. at seminary, at Dallas Seminary. Um, so thank you, Ray, for praying for me. <laughs> um, and then, let's see, so I was homeschooled through the eighth grade, and then I went to public high school and graduated early, and then went to the University of Wyoming, and I majored in math and Spanish, and that's where I met Nate in, he's going to take over. <laughs> so I was born in 1980, and Omaha, Nebraska, and then we moved when I was 10 to Wyoming. As I grew up, uh, more when we were in Wyoming on from 10 on going to a, a liberal church, one of the liberal denominations where I heard some, some things that aren't accurate about the Bible, having fables and not being the word of God and never heard the, the gospel clearly. Uh, but I, I did believe in God and, and would even pray and in particular when my dad got sick with stomach cancer when I was uh, 15 and I would pray for him pray that he would get better and he ended up passing away and so after after that happened um, I started looking for explanations and the explanation that I came to the conclusion that I came to uh, was that God didn't exist and that there were it's too many problems with, with pain, evil, and suffering in the world. And so I was an atheist through my high school years. I would argue, in particular with Christians, try to show them why they, what they believed was wrong. And, um, and then when I got to college at the University of Wyoming my freshman year, I showed up late to a calculus class. Uh, I studied mechanical engineering. And I went into this calculus class and sat in the back of the room and way up at the front of the room, there was a really pretty girl and she turned around and, and looked and she smiled and I thought, oh, well, that's promising. <laughs> I don't know if she was smiling at me, but that was enough. So the next couple of days, I inched my way closer until I happened to be in the second row right behind her. And we started studying uh, calculus together. And I found out that she was very religious. And uh, so I did the same thing I did with lots of other people. I argued with her about why God doesn't exist. And I would point out certain things. And she was one of the few people that could actually uh, give good answers to my questions. 
she, I could see by her life that, that she believed what she was preaching, so to speak, and that um, she wasn't hypocritical and, and whatnot in her walk. And so long story short, I would, you know, argue with her and she would share things with me versus if she didn't know an answer, she would ask her dad and then give me that answer. A lot of people were praying for me and she gave me a Bible. I started reading and, and so I came to faith in my freshman year of college and I, I realized that I was mad at God because my dad had died. And, and then that's when I started growing and reading and learning and, and whatnot. And Ruthanne and I, we were friends throughout college. She didn't, um, well, I was a brand new believer for one, and she wasn't interested in me in that way. And she was very clear about that. <laughs> and, and, and that was good. That was good that, that we weren't uh, romantic or, or whatnot. It didn't make it awkward because she knew that I, that I liked her. Although when I believed and when I started growing, I knew that that had to be like an independent thing. It wasn't because um, in any kind of sneaky way to, um, to be boyfriend and girlfriend or anything like that. And then at the, uh, so we grew, yeah, we, we kind of had rough times in college, some rough times, and, and we were good friends and other times. And then towards the end of college, Ruthanne had gone on some mission trips with Campus Crusades. I had gone on some trips with um, friends and her at church. And she, um, well, towards the end of our, our college, I, I decided that I was ready to get married. I was ready to look for, for that one person, and she was at the top of the list. And I came back from a mission trip, went up and visited her and asked if, um, you know, to ask her to pray about courting. And she told me, well, I'm not interested in you in that way. <laughs> and I said, well, okay, can you pray about it anyway? <laughs> and so, so she said she would. And I went and I also asked her parents if, if they could pray about us courting. And, and her mom looked at me and she said, well, she's not interested in you in that way. <laughs> and I said, well, I know she told me the same thing, but maybe could you pray about it anyway? And just our senior year of, of college, God um, as a God who answers prayer, and uh, her heart started to, to change, and we started courting, and then we got married. After we graduated, January 2003, we got married, and so we're coming on 17 years. And after college, uh, we moved to Idaho Falls, Idaho. I worked at a national lab for a year and a half, and Ruth Ann uh, taught at uh, Idaho State. She taught math. And previous to getting married, we had committed to go on on a mission trip for at least a year, the short-term trip. So uh, I quit my job, and so did Ruth Ann, and we went down to San Luis Potosí, where Sharon uh, has spoken about, and we did college ministry for two and a half years. That's where Silas was born. And then we came back to the States, to New Mexico, so that I could get um, a, a better foundation because I wanted to dedicate myself to teaching the word of God to other people. And I, we came to Albuquerque because that's where Schaefer Seminary is. As you know, Ray taught me a course or two. Jeff was in Hebrew uh, with me, beginning Hebrew with me. Um, you know, George Meisinger, of course. And that's where we met a lot of you guys that we know at Grace Church. And after four years in Albuquerque, New Mexico, God opened the door for us to come and serve him in Latin America at the Central American Theological Seminary in Guatemala City. And we've been here since 2011. And uh, two of our, so Silas was born in Mexico in 2007. So he's coming up on 13, 14 in March. Two girls, Shiloh and Eden, were born in New Mexico, and then the rest of them were born in Guatemala. So Eve, uh, Simon, Shadrach, and Susana were all born here. So Silas has double nationality, and so do the last four. And so we're just real grateful to God for the opportunity that we have to be able to serve him here and in training leaders in Latin America. And we're very thankful to God for for all of you guys, for your prayers, and those of you who support us financially, we thank you for that. We miss you guys, and we're thankful for this class as well. And that's 
kind of the the summary. Um, we're going to send out a, a newsletter here, and so if anybody would like to get it and doesn't get it, please send your email in the chat to me, or, or send us your, an email with your info. That's our life Great. in a nutshell so far. Praise the Lord. Steve, would you mind uh, praying for them and closing our our morning for us? Yes. Oh, uh, Father, thank you for all that you do for us. Uh, thank you that you're personal and that you speak to others through us by your Holy Spirit and that some things that seem impossible, you make possible. Um, thank you for working in our lives to bring us together for Nate and Ruth Ann and how you have worked that out is a real testament to you and that you are sovereign and that you have so much love that you would do this and we pray for their safety in Guatemala. We also pray that you may open up a way for them to uh, come back to the U.S. to visit, to maybe get some support, some more support and that you would provide uh, plane tickets, uh, make their, uh, their way here seamless, and that there would be a vehicle that maybe a limousine they could all fit in. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Thanks, Steve. Amen. Thank you. Love you guys. Yeah, thank you for sharing, Perchers. Thanks, Thank you. Thanks for your prayers. Love you. Yes. Everyone, it was great. Bye-bye. Have a great week. God bless you all. See y'all. Have a good week.